Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase them all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. For today's education episode, we actually have a listener-requested topic. We're going to be going over low back pain, so evaluation and treatment is not a pain in your back. That was good, see? I think you're taking you're, notes. You're learning from the best here. I was going to say, usually you start with the cringy lines. <laughs> Why do you refer it as cringy? I don't think it's cringy at all. Well, whatever it is, why don't we get into it? Yes, but before we somersault into the spine-tingling information, see, we're on it this morning. <laughs> I feel good about this episode. What are the objectives? We're going to discuss the anatomy of the low back. Don't worry, it's not going to be intensive. Then we're going to discuss how low back pain alters the sensory motor system. This is becoming a big area of research and might explain why a lot of people with low back pain get low back pain again. Then we'll discuss some evaluation principles. We'll review some rehab concepts. And then you should feel pretty comfortable to deal with low back or look up future concepts yourself. Why don't we start with the anatomy and get it out of the way? Because it's so hard to listen to on a podcast. Why do you say it like get it out of the way? Anatomy <laughs> is awesome. Who didn't love their anatomy course? So if we're going to talk about the spine, you know we got to talk about it. The intervertebral disc. Of course, it has two layers, the annulus fibrosis, and then the nice little jelly donut inside the jelly, the nucleus pulposus. That's the little jelly that likes to push out during herniations. The intervertebral disc in low back pain plays a large role in a large proportion of patients. Most of the time if someone has low back pain, it's a high likelihood it's probably from a disc herniation somewhere. Of course, you still need to do your special tests and you still need no mechanism to understand it, but you can feel pretty comfortable there might be a disc herniation somewhere. But then again, there's also the disc herniations that don't have symptoms. Exactly, and a key portion of that is because a lot of that innervation into the discs are on the outside outer layers of the annulus fibrosis so if the herniation isn't pushing out through to activate those uh, nociceptors that are around it you're not going to get pain so that is definitely a thing and why there's difficulty in, in contributing all disc herniations as being painful because someone will have back pain and then they'll do an mri and they'll see like disc herniations and maybe they're not significant and they're like oh that's the problem But is it, though? Because I think most people do have some kind of disc herniation. Well, I was going to say also that brings up the controversy about too much imaging. Yes, exactly. It's funny. I think I saw a TikTok that talks about the U.S. is one of the countries that has the highest rates of imaging. Really? Yes. They kind of the idea was, I guess they were saying that in other countries, not a lot of Doctors get sued at the same rate as in the United States, so they don't like tend to order imaging as here they try to cover bases and order imaging. I don't know. It was really fascinating. I never thought about it that way. It's all right. Something to look into. Yeah, for sure. So going back to the core. Yeah. So again, we're talking about the low back pain in the spine. We got to talk about the core and we have to start with the multifidi. Those nice little small muscles around the spine that help control that movement. They're very important to spinal stability and controlling motion of the spine because of a large uh, proportion of muscle spindles that sit within this muscle. 
it's very good at detecting where your spine is in space. That's why they're so vital in controlling motion of the spine and making sure you're in a stable position to take on load. Next would be the transversus abdominis. Everyone talks about TVA. As we go into more of the eval and rehab, we'll kind of discuss it a little bit. Um, but it does serve a very important purpose as as it wraps around the posterior side of your you know, your body going towards your spine, it connects with a lot of different muscles. It connects to compartments that will contribute to the thoracolumbar fascia, like the quadratus lumborum, the psoas, and the erectors, which means if they connect to the same compartments or same fascia, that means they're going to influence each other, and that sometimes gets forgotten. Again, with the core, we have your obliques, rectus abdominis. I think one of the most, when I was going through school, one of the most mind-blowing concepts at the time, now remember, I was undergrad for this, so that's why I was mind-blowing. If you look at the anatomical structure of the rectus abdominis, it has a six-pack shape, right? So you have like a square of muscle, then you have fat, like tendon, and then square of muscle. And the professor was like, if this muscle was meant to be a prime mover, wouldn't you think it would just be one solid muscle the whole way down? And I looked and I was like, you're right. I was like, that's crazy. So it's actually really designed to act isometrically and add stability. Those... Little packs of contractile tissue cause contraction, sending tension through the tendon to the other parts of the muscle, and it's supposed to be there for stability. So next time you see someone doing a ton of crunches, it might be a good idea. Hey, let's let's train train that rectus abdominis a little bit differently, and it may be better to train it isometrically for the stability factor. Planks are our friends. Planks are our friends. Let's bring back the plank challenge. You mean the planking that doesn't involve your core at all? We can make it involve core. <laughs> and then the last one that sometimes gets forgot about, forgotten about because a lot of people look at it as the culprit is the erector spinae. These groups of muscles that are like essentially like three muscles along your spine divided into sections depending on the level of the spine does play a large role in stability of the spine, especially sagittal plane stability. So keep that in mind as we talk about the evaluation and the rehab that the erector spinae may not always be the culprit. They're not always the villain. They're not Darth Vader in this situation. Unless you talk about episode six, then it might be. Because that's when Darth Vader turns to the good side. You know, something I always do in my evaluation is I check to see if someone's able to turn on their multifidi. And that's really easy. You can palpate just right along the spinous processes. And then you have them, a lot of times, if you have them just try to engage their TA, the multifidi should engage at the same time. Yes, that's true. And so I usually look at that and then also I'll have them lie prone and do uh, just a hip extension. Hey, whoa, whoa, hey, you're giving them a little too much eval right right now. You know what? I like to just get into it. We're taking too long. <laughs> I was going to say, I do want to hear more about that though, for sure. All right. Why don't we move into how pain affects the sensory motor system? Yeah, so this is something that is definitely emerging in the literature, not just on low back pain, but in other pain syndromes and everything like that, is usually when you have an injury, you're now at a higher risk of getting that same injury. Even after all the rehab you do to get back to your physical function and get back to sport, get back to work, whatever, you're still at a higher risk. Well, why is that? And that's been tough to explain why this happens. Some of it is because, you know, the contractile properties, if it's a muscle, are different, and like stuff like that. 
But a big contributor is how pain affects the body. And we're still learning about pain. And it's been, I know I talk to Sandra all the time about how much I love learning about pain because at the end of the day, we're treating pain with a lot of these patients. So when you're talking about low back pain, and in particular, we're talking about non-specific low back pain more. So there's not really a path like pathoanatomical reason they're having back pain. So we're not talking about like the spondies or the severe hernia disc herniations, like stuff like that, that you can actually see on imaging and would actually be causing the problem. But even if it's not a something that you can see on the imaging, you're still going to get an inflammatory response to whatever's causing that damage, whether it's mechanical overload or anything like that. Well, this inflammatory response leads to increased pain. Those cells that are being damaged, the white blood cells and the immune response that's coming to that area are going to release chemicals that increase pain that are also going to lower the threshold of these nociceptors to fire, which means you're going to feel have a higher chance of feeling pain. Essentially, you're feeling pain, <laughs> right? Would that be a safe bet? So, and this is going to be the same for during the acute phase. And also this inflammatory response will be present in the chronic stage if if it's being prolonged, if it's not getting better, that inflammatory response is just going to keep going and it's going to last. Well, this pain from the inflammatory response will also affect the glial cells. Not once did I ever think I would be talking about glial cells again, but if you have forgotten, the glial cells essentially are cells that support the nervous system. They support the neurons, you know, by assisting in the reuptake of neurotransmitters, helping with connections, and it was a lot of stuff that I was like, whoa, I forgot about all this. But they are starting to see that these cells play a role in how our brain interprets pain. With these cells having a contribution in the nervous system, which means they're up in the brain as well, this affects how your, ba- your brain will process pain. This is a contribution of how people develop central sensitization, which is essentially saying they interpret pain a little bit differently. They have a lower threshold of getting a pain stimulus, and it may not even be in the area that they're having pain, but it could be somewhere else in the body. So that's why when we're treating pain, there's a lot more to it than just treating the area because they could be having a systemic manifestation of their pain. Another thing that when when, uh, people have low back pain or pain in general is now the proprioceptive input is getting fuzzy. So as we know... The passive structures within joints and the intervertebral joints are joints that that send um, proprioceptive information, the muscle spindles and the multifidi, proprioceptive information. Pain can inhibit that signal. So now the signal that's going up to the brain isn't as accurate. It's a little fuzzy. It's almost like when I take my glasses off. The world's blurry for me. So if your brain's not getting that full picture of what's happening around it it has a difficult time interpreting where those joints are in space so now your body doesn't know well where am i at what what's happening right and now it puts more stress on the passive structures in further ranges than they're comfortable adding more stress which can add more damage now creating more pain it's what a lot of people call a vicious cycle yeah see (laughs) We're crushing it here. Now that we have altered proprioceptive input and the brain doesn't know what to do, the motor system has to change because that's how we 
protect ourselves. That's how we move. That's how we do all these things. With low back pain, the research is very hit or miss based on what you read. There are some studies that say muscles are deactivated and they're inhibited. And there's some studies that say, oh, these muscles are now overactive because it's trying to brace itself. And let me tell you, the answer is both. The response that each person has is very individual to them. So not one low back pain patient is going to be the same as everyone else. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Exactly. We want to treat people individually, and this is definitely a case with low back pain. In general, you can assume that deeper muscles are going to be inhibited. A lot of research really does support that the multifidi are inhibited. They begin to atrophy. They start to get fat infiltrated into the muscle, which... If fat, a lot of fat's going in the muscle, well, fat doesn't contract, so that's a problem. And then the more superficial muscles can be overactive, like your erectors, some of your QL, and like muscles like that, they can become overactive. That's a general guideline, but as we go into the eval, you'll see that there's studies done that it's not consistent that, oh, the erectors are always overactive. That's not true. Maybe certain sections are and some sections aren't. And that's where your eval will come in. So keep that in mind once we actually discuss the evaluation aspect of it. Because they did a st- just a simple sitting study where they altered their posture in sitting in patients with low back pain and healthy controls. And I believe those that kind of sat with flat back had a deactivation of their erector spinae. But their psoas and their quadrasum borum were like way overactive. And that's crazy because the erector spinae aren't doing their job to help with supporting posture. Well, now other muscles are having to do that that aren't quite suited for that job. So I like to think of it as a fine balance because you have muscles in the front, you have muscles in the back, you have muscles on the sides. And if one of those muscles or a group of muscles is pulling too much, like let's say on the front, then the back has to work extra hard in order to be able to contract to counter what the front is doing. And same thing on the sides. you got to be able to find what is causing that tightness or spasm or imbalance. And then you got to figure, that's where you can go to figure out what your next steps are. Yes. I mean, you can't just generalize that the psoas is the culprit because... You know, a lot of people view it as like, oh, well, the psoas is always tight because we're always putting in a shortened position. And that's true. It is always in a shortened position, but maybe it's tight because it's super weak. You know, maybe we do have to activate it more. You know, if we have someone that's firing their erectors way too much, well, the psoas is a spine stabilizer. A lot of people forget that it it does attach to the spine. So therefore, it does have a role in helping with the stability. So maybe we need to address that issue. And that's where a good evaluation to see what the underlying dysfunctions are, are a huge help instead of just generalizing. Oh, well, a lot of people, you know, low back pain is very prevalent. The psoas is always short. We should lengthen the psoas. Well, maybe we need to address it a little bit differently. So just keep that in mind. The motor system changes based on what it's trying to do. And this whole idea is to, the body's trying to protect itself. But the problem is, is if this goes long term, it's going to cause more issues than benefits. So that's why we do definitely have to, one, address pain and then address the changes that have happened because of the pain and what motor dysfunction was there before the pain that may have created that onset. You know, I work with dancers a lot. And in that population, you'd think that they'd have really strong psoas muscles, especially when they're doing their big grand extensions where they bring their leg up 
um, in the air, either to the side or the front, where the psoas is really, you'd think, is doing a lot of the work. The problem is, a lot of times they're using it so much that it is becoming tight and weak and they're compensating with other muscles. So, I mean, you got to look at other populations too. Think of soccer Mm -hmm. when they're juggling the ball or um, any other sport where you are bringing your leg up, uh, sprinting when you are bringing your knees into your chest. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. And another reason why this is becoming, this is such an issue is like we said, that altered proprioception, your body's having a tough time understanding where it is in space. The only other way that it's going to be able to figure this out is by using the muscles. Well, if muscles start tightening up, that's going to create a lot more stiffness. The spine's not going to move because your body's like, I don't know where we are. I don't know what's happening. I need to protect myself. And this is leading to more of a feed forward system where your body's just anticipating things instead of also receiving that feedback information to be like, oh, I can modify this because that that input's totally altered and your brain's just like, I'm just doing the best I can to get through the day. So now that we talked about what pain is doing to your body, let's get into how are we going to look at someone with low back pain and what are we going to do? Finally, I'm so excited for this part. (laughs) If you couldn't tell. Yes. So before I go into talking about, there's different classification systems on how to look at low back pain, and they are very important. I do want to hear more about what you were saying about how you look at low back pain with looking at the multifidi and the transversus abdominis. So the reason why I actually started looking at the multifidi was when I actually first heard about women post-C-section. A lot of times they're the first thing to go or actually over time, is their multifidi. And what they were finding is women who've had C-sections, they look down the road and those multifidi are so atrophied. And that's when I started realizing, oh, well, multifidi must have, and those women were having back pain. So then I was like, wow, multifidi really have a lot bigger of a role than I thought they did. I mean, of course, they're a core muscle, but just that tiny muscle, those tiny muscles that you have, play such a big role. So that's when I started looking at, okay, well, we got to figure out what part of the core, when those are so forgotten, we got to figure out what part of the core is actually causing this. And that's where we can get down. And if you address the root cause, then that's, you're going to get way better outcomes. So just looking at that multifidi along with the transverse abdominis. um, I also try to do some pelvic floor with my patients. So I try to have them engage and see if they can engage with their TA because if those are all working it, working together, then you're going to have a lot better of an idea. Um, we talked about this before in another episode, I think, but I also do a lot of failed load transfer, which I learned from one of my preceptors who was who works with a lot of dancers as well. And basically, what that is is when your core is not able to support you as you move into a certain position, then you can tell because there's a shift or a deficit that's happening in that movement. So the way that you would test it is if you're on your back in a hook lying position or getting ready to do a glute bridge, what you would do is have the patient do a glute bridge and then just watch their hips. They should move evenly up. If one of them dips, then you have a, a good idea that maybe that that they're failing at transferring their load because of their core. The, re- the way that you can uh, put your hands on and really test this is if you put your hands 
around their core like you are their transverse abdominis and create that force pressure or that force closure, then you have them do the same glute bridge. And if it aids the movement, then that's when you realize, okay, their transverse abdominis is probably not timing right. So that's why they're failing at transferring their load. And that's when you know, okay, I'm going to start working on the transverse abdominis. Yeah, that's all. And you know what? Thank you for bringing up pelvic floor because I, I totally forgot to add this to the anatomy section. The diaphragm and um, pelvic floor are also core muscles. You can think of your core as like a box, right? Well, the roof and the ceiling are going to be diaphragm and pelvic floor respectively. So they're very important in creating stability for the spine by increasing the intra-abdominal pressure to help you know, stabilize spine movement. And it's been a while since I was looking into this. I might have to look back to make sure, but I believe those with low back pain also have a greater likelihood for uh, breathing disorders where they're actually having, you know, I believe it might be increased breathing rate. Increased breathing rate. Yeah. So that just shows that when you are treating with someone with low back pain, it might be a good idea to rule in or out a breathing issue to, because if they are having a higher breathing rate, now you know, I need to address the diaphragm in my rehab. If I'm remembering correctly, the posture of the low back and the diaphragm movement and the breathing, all of that associated can also show up as an increased heart rate. So that's also something to look at too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing when we're talking about like for this segment, we're talking about, you know, non-specific low back pain. But when you're doing an evaluation with someone with low back pain, obviously you want to go in and rule out other issues. So you want to do the special tests that you've already learned from school and you want to make sure that we're not looking at some kind of spondy or we're not looking at SI joint pain. Uh, you want to do the special tests for SI joint dysfunction to gain a better idea. Yes, I know we've talked about on the show before that SI joint pain, usually that pain doesn't go above L5, right? But they could still have SI joint dysfunction, which shows that something with the connective tissue might be you know, dysfunctional, which could be contributing to low back pain. So that's still valuable information to get. So that's something to keep in mind. You also want to rule out a disc herniation because that's going to guide your treatment. Um, I remember when uh, Sandra was, you know, in school, we always talked about facet joints. You also <laughs> want to rule out facet joint pain. So just because we're talking about nonspecific low back pain, when you have a low back pain patient, you're not just going to tunnel vision and just be like, oh, I'm just thinking lo specific low back pain. No, you need to rule out these other things like a stenosis, you know. So keep that in mind when we're talking about this evaluation. We're talking specifically of looking at techniques for looking at nonspecific low back pain. But this is just a tool to add to your rehab to rule out other structures and guide your treatment. So a lot of the literature in low back pain in general has a lot of limitations because they kind of group everyone together. Like they just say, here's the low back pain group. But as we know, everyone and what we talked about Everyone responds to low back pain differently. They have their motor system changes based on that person. So you can't really just group everyone together and expect to get similar results. So the idea is that, oh, we need to subclassify 
low back pain patients based on whatever dysfunction they're showing. And there's different classification systems. There's the mechanical diagnosis and treatment technique through the McKenzie Institute, which I do want to take those courses. I hear they're very great and I'm excited. That's one way to classify patients based on how they move. There's a treatment based. What There's different algorithms based on what they're presenting, what treatments might be better for them. Um, I know there's clinical uh, prediction rules based on what patients would respond well to manipulation, whereas some patients will respond better to stability training. Um, The movement impairment uh, systems assessment, um, you know, that can tell you what direction they prefer to move in. And then there's the regional interdependence and kind of like what you were talking about, you know, looking at the hips, looking at the knees, looking at the ankles, where there are dysfunctions there that might be contributing to this, um, you know, the symptoms up upstream. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to say, hey, just do all these <laughs> in your eval. And next thing you know, you've spent two hours just looking at this uh, patient's um, <laughs> low back. But use some of them that you feel comfortable with. If you're, if you're great at McKenzie diagnosis and you took all their courses and you're certified and you're seeing great results with it, use it. You know, it's not, it's not going to be the answer for all back, low back pain, right? You have to be a versatile clinician, but if you're comfortable with it, use it. You know, um, I think you can use different ones that you feel comfortable with as long as you are treating the patient as an individual and going off of that. And if it's something that you're still struggling, finding your answer, there's nothing wrong with referring for someone to have who has a different mindset about it to get their ideas in. Kind of going back to what Joe was saying the low back is so central. And so it could be stemming from maybe a shoulder issue and you're looking at that diagonal sling, or maybe it's an ankle issue and the low back is just what's central in in your body. And really the deficit is um, if you have pronation and it makes your tibia internally rotated and then your femur internally rotated, then you're having impingement in the hip, which causes low back so, you know, it's all all connected. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said about like, oh, hey, what Joe said, because the first thing I thought of when you said that was when he said, if I can help you, I'll let you know. <laughs> if I can't help you, I'll still let you know. <laughs> so and that's definitely how it is. You know, if it's something that, hey, I think you'd get, you know, I've done everything that I can do. We're still not quite where you need to be. I want an outsider to look at this and maybe they'll have a different mindset. And using these systems or like, classifying patients based on whatever your findings are on your exam or whatever functional tests you have them do, it's going to help guide your treatment because now you know where their dysfunctions are and you're going to treat this. Well, this dysfunction is being caused by, oh, this not activating correctly or this is being too active. Now you can attack that and now you have a guide towards your treatment and it doesn't just feel like they're two separate things. The eval is actually helping you develop that treatment plan. And with low back pain, that is, again, each patient's so different in how they respond. And that's another reason why low back pain is just so frustrating for a lot of people to deal with. So these classification systems can help you guide your treatment. And hopefully it actually makes your eval a little bit easier because now you have some stuff you're looking for. Cause I know a lot of students going through school. I know a lot that I've talked to the one area that they do not feel comfortable with is evaluating the low back. If you can do anything that'll help gain that comfort, go for it. We do have some SI joint evaluation techniques on our YouTube, so you can head over 
Um, it's a pretty short video, but it's a really good refresher if you have already learned the special tests and or if you're even studying for the BOC. Yes, absolutely. So now that you've you've done your eval, you know every dysfunction this person has ever had the, for their whole life. <laughs> we now have to do the rehab. You know, actually, really fast. We learned so much from Joe's evaluation episode, and I there's just so much we can bring from that episode into this one as well because he was saying that his evaluation also really guides his treatment because his evaluation, if he's finding someone who is not able to complete a certain movement, then guess what? In the treatment, in the rehab, you're going to be working on getting towards that movement. Yes, absolutely. So when you have that low back pain patient that you're rehabbing, right? You want to focus on the deficits that you found. You want to, a lot of research is going into more the motor control aspect of treating the low back. You know, a lot of people, when they think low back pain, they're like, oh, stability exercises, let's go. But maybe someone doesn't need a lot of stability exercises, like in general, maybe they need more mobility work in one area and then learning how to fire this muscle next. A lack of lumbar flexion extension is so overlooked. Yes, absolutely. And that's another thing when you're going into the eval. Sorry to keep jumping back to eval, but it's so important because so it, it, it really starts it is even just getting from like looking at how where the spine, spinous processes are in a static posture and then going off, kind of going where the transverse processes would be and having them do rotations or side bending to see what the mobility is, right? Because the spine's going to have to move with movement. And you, depending on which way it's rotating, you can see what's, you know, what lumbar spine stuck, which one's moving too much, right? So that's how fine tuned you can get into looking at low back pain. So keep that in mind when you're rehabbing these, um, these patients that it's not just like, oh, everyone has, you know, low back pain. Everyone needs core stability because no, that may be more detrimental. They may, it might be teaching them to over contract these muscles which has been shown to be bad because it puts a lot of compression on the spine well long-term compression is going to lead to damage it's going to lead to fatigue of those muscles sooner which now those muscles can't fire properly they're going to get damaged because they're fatigued all the time and now you just perpetuate the vicious cycle that we talked about so when you look at the literature about motor control some of the studies and there was a great uh cochran review on this that shows that motor control exercises have, you know, a small, like they're, they're very helpful. Like they will definitely get significant results, but a very small effect size. And the reason for that small effect size is again, low back pain research has a big limitation because they just group low back pain patients into one group and not a lot of studies do a subclassification. So keep that in mind that, oh, well, I'm reading that motor control exercises really aren't that different than just general exercise, which has been shown to help with low back too sometimes. Well, that's because they just put a whole group of low back pain patients into one study. If they would have divided into, hey, here's a group that needs a lot of motor control exercises for this these type of muscles, they probably would have seen greater results. And when we talk about motor control exercises, we're talking about teaching the body and teaching the motor system how to fire properly and getting the proper timing and the proper contraction type and the proper relaxation. That's also very important. So if you, through your eval, you notice someone is firing their so is way too much and their quadrasalum is doing way too much and you notice, 
those erectors don't fire quite correctly, at least in the lumbar spine area, and the erectors in the thoracic spine are taking over. That just tells you we need to get those erectors in the lumbar spine to fire properly instead of just viewing erectors as all bad. So you could really tailor your rehab based on that. That's actually a really good point because if, let's say, the psoas is overactive, then any stability you're going to do, guess what's going to happen? They're going to fire the psoas <laughs> instead of the muscles they should be firing. Exactly. And you know what's funny? You it, That kind of reminded me, everyone thinks of TVA when they think of low back pain. And it's very important. And there's studies, right, that show that, oh, the transversus abdominis is you know, atrophied or the timing's off, it's delayed. That's why you have to do your evaluation. If they can control how much their um, TVA fires, then maybe they don't need as much TVA work. You can incorporate it, of course, but maybe that's not the sole issue of what's causing their low back pain. So keep that in mind because they've, they've done like some biomechanical modeling studies and based on how the TVA and, of course, modeling studies do have the limitations, but they do provide pretty good information. If it, if it was just a TVA issue, the lack of TVA activation or the increase from rehab really wouldn't change stability of the spine that much. And I thought that was very interesting because everyone talks about how, oh, we always need to activate TVA. Well, maybe we need to look to see if the person needs help with that because maybe their issue is coming from somewhere else, not just TVA. But for the patients who do need TVA, I really, really, really love using Pilates. And I know that not a lot of clinicians may know what the difference between Pilates and yoga is because a lot of times they're grouped together. And you think, like, how are you going to get football players to do Pilates? It's completely different in my eyes. They're completely different because yoga is more of sustained pose and the way that Pilates is is more using the core in a functional stable manner as the upper extremities and lower extremities are moving so basically what I like to do with it is if I know that someone needs TA work or if I know that someone needs more stability in their core then what I'll do is I'll use some of those Pilates exercises in my rehab because with that stable core, it is moving their upper body and lower body. So it's teaching them to keep that TA on for a sustained amount of time during these movements. So it's the same thing like if you're going to kick a soccer ball, you need to have that stable core. That's what you can transfer from Pilates. You can transfer up to um, things like kicking that soccer ball or um, running even when you're keeping that core stable or even using those obliques as you, as you're bringing up your, uh, knees. Yeah. I'm so, I'm glad you brought up, uh, Pilates. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of people kind of forget that as an option and it's kind of been interesting at, you know, the national conference, they do have sessions, at least the lab sessions too, on Pilates techniques. And even if you're not super comfortable, cause I know, my Pilates knowledge compared to Sandra's Pilates knowledge is completely different. You know, she's way more comfortable with it than I am because she's went through a lot of courses with it. Um, but it could be something that can help change up rehab. It is a fun activity to do. It's something different than just having, Hey, just do three sets of this, you know, a simple exercise. It could make a fun environment. Like if you're like, man, I kind of just do the same exercises all the time. 
this is a cool way to change it up. And your athletes may be like, well, this is different. This is cool. And it's challenging. And, you know, there, you can do... It definitely does kick my butt, for <laughs> sure, every time. You can do different options, like you can just do a mat Pilates where you have no equipment, or you can have the Pilates ring with the magic circle, which I think is super, super fun. Or, there, I mean, there are so many different Pilates equipment that we might not have access to in a traditional athletic training setting, but there's so much you can do without that equipment, too. Yeah, absolutely. And again... The whole idea is, you know, you know, you can change it up, you can make it a, f- a fun workout for for your student athletes and still accomplish the goals that you want to do as well. I actually want to bring more Pilates to you guys. So if you guys are interested, please let me know. So then I can actually bring that from the back burner and something that I've wanted to do for a while actually to the forefront and get it done quicker. Um, but anyway, um, I think that wraps it up for our content today, right? Yep. I think we can put a bow on the low back. (laughs) So if you guys want to read more about this, Randy, how many citations do you think you have for this? I can't remember. I have to count it up. But I do have to say, right before doing this episode, I got a new book on low back pain. And that has been my one of my favorite books so far. I've been reading it nonstop. And that was a big help on understanding these newer concepts coming out. So all of our citations and Randy's new book, all of those will be on our website, you can go in the description below or the show notes and then it will be under uh, citations and resources, I believe it's called. And then if you guys want to comment on this episode, you totally can in our AT Corner Facebook group. It's called the AT Corner Facebook community, or you can go to facebook.com slash group slash AT Corner podcast and let us know what you think. We also always post a question of the week, which we just started. So go ahead and head over there. There's only one question to enter and it's where did you hear about our podcast? And then you'll automatically be joined. If you guys are new, we do every other episode is education or story. So this one was education. Next episode is stories. And I believe next episode is March. Oh, March is a special month. It is National Athletic Training Month. And we, for the month, we have some good stuff for everyone. And we're going to kick it off right on March 1st. So we're going to be celebrating athletic training in a bunch of different ways. So make sure you stay tuned for that. If you want to submit a story, make sure you head over to our Instagram stories where we always list our upcoming topics. And then we also have an announcement for MedBridge. Yes, because what year is it, babe? It's a reporting year. It is a CEU reporting year. Yeah, so we are affiliates with MedBridge, and if you want a full year of access to CEUs, um, they have certificate programs, they have study prep programs within this whole um, website, just use the code ATCORNER, and you can get $200 off your subscription. And that subscription is a full year. If you guys want a link, the link is also in the show notes below, but you don't need the link, you just need ATCORNER at checkout. And I think that wraps it up. Yes, thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.